Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 10th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the doll spent three hours discussing nursing home charges and disability allowance payments. I want to state at the outset that the government takes seriously the issues raised in relation to how the state has approached legal challenges taken against it. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly's assurances were not enough, though, for some TDs, including those in the government parties. There's something really wrong with the way we treat older people in our society and the the way that they are cared for. At the heart of this debate is a denial of an entitlement to care in a public uh, nursing home uh, where a person who has that right has to go to a private nursing home to get that care and they have to pay for it. That's exactly what happened. It was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, and it did. The government have to address that wrong. Finnegale's Fergus O'Dowd, another TD for Louth and Meath, was critical of how governments have treated vulnerable people over the years. There are three groups of people with disabilities potentially entitled to payments, but only one got paid. Firstly, the people who never applied to the scheme because they were advised not to. Secondly, the people who did apply but the deciding officer told them that they were not entitled to repayments under the scheme and because of that, they didn't appeal that decision. And finally, there was the minority who did appeal and ultimately were the only ones to receive what was due to them. Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster. Meanwhile, Fergus O'Dowd recounted the experiences of families with loved ones who were resident in Dialgan House, Dundalk. Bring an umbrella, a family was told, as their family member died behind the glass window at a nursing home. And nine members of a family stood outside that window and saw their loved one pass away while nobody inside, nobody, nobody inside uh, went to help that dying person. That is a fact. 23 people died in Dalgan Nursing Home Minister, as you well know, because you met the families and you have not yet agreed to a special inquiry into deaths in that home and other homes of which you have been notified at. So I think you have a lot of work to do, Minister, and I must say I'm not particularly impressed 
with what you're saying here today either. As for charges and allowances, the government is going to spend some time reviewing that report from the Attorney-General. Notwithstanding the assurances provided by the Attorney's report, as a further step in the process, Minister Donnelly and Minister Humphreys have undertaken to consider the report in full and to revert to government in three months. Yeah, that's uh, the Minister of State, Mary Butler, the two local TDs uh, that we heard in uh, those clips. Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael and Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster join us on the line now. And a very good morning to both of you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fergus O'Dowd, uh, first of all, if I can start with yourself, I think a lot of people sure. uh, were taken aback by how critical you were of uh, the state's performance in caring for older people in this country. And you asked uh, the ministers uh, in summing up to uh, address a number of uh, the criticisms and concerns that you have specifically those relating uh, to an inquiry into those 23 deaths at Dalgan House uh, but that went ignored I think. Well I had raised it also Michael I know you mightn't be aware of this in the previous week in the doll directly with the Taoiseach and he did give comfort in that he said that there would be an inquiry, a general inquiry and he mm. did say that they would look very seriously as an inquiry into Dargan House and a small number of other homes. So I'm reasonably confident, as you can be, uh, that we will get that inquiry. But I will continue to press for it, and I'm not going away. Mm-hmm. Neither are the families and the relatives going to go away. Um, so I, I am critical. Of course I'm critical, because the age cohort, people aged over 65, there's almost, uh, almost a quarter of a million people in that age cohort now. And I think we need to do a lot more. There are promises in the programme for government uh, to have a care commission to, and particularly to have and bring forward, and many people have promised it and many governments have said it was happening, uh, a statutory home care system where people can stay in their home where they want to stay for as long as they possibly can. And they only go into a nursing home when basically they, they, they are bedridden, if I can use that word, in a dominant in a negative sense, where they're not mobile, where they're... We're highly you know, dependent. We're highly dependent, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. And yeah. I think that, that's what I want to see. And that's what the people I talk mm. to want. And adjust the home, uh, you know, mm. increase the, the monies that are available to upgrade the heating mm. for all the people mm. um, and also uh, to make available the grant to adopt your home if, if you have disabilities. Yeah, and you raised a lot of issues, uh, including uh, a commissioner for older people uh, in line with yes, uh, the yes. call from age action uh, yesterday. But you were very critical as well of uh, the government's um, strategy for dealing with yes. medical card patients. You said it was wrong that they were charged for private nursing home. Yeah, well, I think, see, the point was that obviously this happened a long time ago and since the Fair Deal came in, I think it's 2006, Excuse me, <clears throat> this hasn't been an issue. But if you take it, say, and draw that, or the dog, say that you want to get into the, the state from nursing home, be St. Oliver's or St. Mary's, and if there wasn't a bed there, if there was a bed there, you got your care because you're entitled to the medical card and because your income was so low, you didn't have to pay for your care there. But if there was no bed available, then you had to go. You had no choice uh, but to go to a private nursing home. And I believe the same entitlement should attach to you there at that time. Mm. But clearly that didn't happen. And that's it, because under the 1970 Medical Health Act, um, you were entitled to inpatient care. Uh, but the state, Imelda Munster, if I could ask you about this, uh, is on uh, safe legal footing, according to the Attorney General. Um, the patients in private homes 
uh, were not entitled to that care free of charge so it was right that they were charged that's the state's legal position uh, but uh, a lot of people would think uh, that that's morally corrupt well i mean that's the the ag has said that that they pretty much there's no case to answer here in relation to private nursing homes but the attorney general is government man if you like and gives the advice and the legal advice etc but um, the, it still comes back to the point that when there were no public um, nursing home beds years ago, you know, when there was a shortage, there wasn't, I mean, it's big business now, particularly private nursing homes, but years ago when families had no other option, the health boards actually put their parent into a private nursing home because there wasn't a public one available. And you hear stories of families years ago having to, you know, live on £30 a week then at that stage because they had to pay for it. Um, so it was ex- extreme hardship on those families at the time. But, I mean, yesterday the minister got up. There was no apology. There was no acknowledgement of any wrongdoing. There was no commitment from the government to do a trawl of, of records. I mean, the the... The case that I... The well, they've said they'll spend three months looking at the Attorney ah, General. Yeah. Yeah. We all know what that means, yeah. Mm. Um, the part that I raised was the... I mean, this is a clear-cut case, mm. it appears, because even the Taoiseach said there wasn't a leg to stand on. Yeah. Those who are in long-term uh, residential disability services. Um, and they, they made the settlement out of court when there was, I think it was 500 cases... So because they didn't want it getting into the public domain, they thought of the media copped on to that that lead to other citizens looking to go to court to vindicate their rights. But there's actually, in the 2011 secret memo, the memo actually references a potential liability of some £360 Now, the the settlement that was made to the 500 people was £20 So that's that leaves an estimate of a further, and they've actually acknowledged mm. that Robert Watt in PAC yesterday morning acknowledged that, that there's upwards of a further 9,000 potentially eligible claimants there that were made pay these so-called voluntary contributions that would be entitled to that pay. But the government and the, and the Attorney General made absolutely no reference to that in his his report, no reference at all. He conveniently put it into two groups, the private nursing home and the public nursing home, but no, made no mention of the thousands of people that were in residential disability services. And why? Because they know that they have a, a, a mm. you know, a case a case to answer for. And this and continues, yes, doesn't it, where people are paying top-up charges in private nursing homes? Of course it does, sure. I mm. mean, I raised it yesterday in the pack. Hmm. again and you know the HSC they just don't give a damn but I raised it with Robert Watt yesterday Yeah and Robert Watt is the chief civil servant in the Department Mm. of Health and he said to you that he doesn't agree with these charges and he says that the department has made it very clear the last time that they spoke to the Public Accounts Committee about this that it is not appropriate that these charges be imposed on residents in private nursing homes and they're looking at a complaints process Uh, so he would appear to be taking it seriously would he not? Well, I mean, he, when I first raised it with him last year, he didn't know anything about it. And then he wrote to me again, with the HSE in the week before the Public Accounts Committee. And again, we're not familiar with that. Uh, you know, this mm. is what they give to you. But I had thought of freedom of information, right? And 
it was correspondence internally between the HSE themselves following on from when I had raised as a public accounts committee. Mm. And it was the Assistant National Director for Primary Care Reimbursement Service that had suggested, and this mm. was over a year ago, yep. and I'll just quote what he said. He said, the primary place where an intervention could be put in to ensure that nursing home clients are not charged for items that would be covered under the medical card scheme would be by inserting a clause in the document of the contract between the HSE and residential care facilities, nursing homes, that actually states the requirement not to charge. Mm. Now, Robert Watt and the HSE know that that option is available. And whilst it was good to hear him say yesterday he doesn't agree with him, mm. well, let him do something. It's odd to think that he didn't know about it. Uh, and he, he wouldn't have been long in the job a, a year ago. But having said that, uh, I mean, I think this was uh, the subject of a, a national debate when uh, there were all yeah. sorts of charges. Uh, there were charges even for religious services, uh, I think, uh, at one stage. Uh, I think, Fergus yeah. O'Dowd, you were making the point that you wouldn't have that sort of thing if you had a, a commissioner for older people because they that commissioner would be able to advocate uh, on behalf of older people and put a, an end to that sort of sharp practice. Absolutely, and I think uh, Jackson and they're very strong <coughs> excuse me, on that and the cost of the office, the equivalent office, which is a comparable population, Wales and Northern Ireland, is about two million a year. But they would protect and there would be independence. So I could go to the commissioner mm. and make my case, excuse me, <coughs> and it would be vindicated or it wouldn't, but it wouldn't be a civil servant or an attorney general making a, a representation. You see, the, the problem is that people need advocacy. Older people need advocacy. And many older people, when their families are ill and their spouse or whatever, mm. they're, they're not well themselves and they're in, you know, they're towards the end of their days. Mm. So they need strong advocacy and strong support. Mm. And that's what I believe is what should happen. Okay. And there's lots of other things that must happen, you know, in terms of adopting housing. I know Imelda would agree with me on that. The, the home care is critical. You know, we've been talking about it for years. It hasn't happened yet. You need a home care system that works. People properly paid uh, as a full-time career for them to work in. So, I mean, people, in my view, shouldn't be in nursing homes at all if they can avoid it. It's 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 not the best care if you can get it at home. Mm. And that's the bottom line, there, really. There, there's something very distasteful, though, isn't there, uh, about um, the state's approach or strategy or legalistic stance on these charges on people, uh, the medical card patients who were charged for private nursing home care when there was nowhere else for them to go and they would have been entitled to public nursing home care uh, and indeed uh, the disability allowances uh, which were taken away from people. I mean, it may be legally okay, but it really is distasteful, is it not, to think that the government of the people uh, is opposed to the people uh, versus the people, if you like, if it was uh, to be listed on a, a court listing, the government versus the people. Michael, the point is that in other cases, uh, the state, we, the taxpayer, have taken full liability for fire standards, mm. for the all of those builders, quality surveyors, architects, civil engineers who built those houses mm. uh, with Micah up in, uh, up in Donegal. It's going to cost, I think, three billion approximately to do that. We 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 have we have supported people who are abused in in Magdalen laundries in you know child yeah. abuse survival scandals. Now, the problem here is, I think, and I'll be very frank with you, if if the expectation is that if we were to repay this money to, to those families, 
uh, if people are no longer alive, and I, I made that point strongly, that if they're alive, or if their spouse is alive, they should get the, they should get that money. Uh, it, but that's a long time ago now. But I, what I think is that it could be as big as 15 billion euros. And, I mean, I would prefer to see that money ring-fenced and put into whatever that figure is, and they have three months to work it out, into improved care for older people in the community and, and, and the state nursing homes and try and keep also smaller nursing homes. I'm not talking about the big combines of, of hundreds of beds. Mm. I'm talking about the 30, 40 bedded nursing home, trying yeah. to keep them open. Okay. I think that's what we have to do. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a good suggestion when I heard it yesterday. What do you think of Hamel de Munster? Because there is a, a, another way of looking at this uh, because uh, there's people who would have been denied their inheritance as well. As I said, there were people that were strapped to the pin of their collar paying for their parents or their loved one in a nursing home. But the government, I mean, those secret memos proved that the government went out of their way mm. to block people from going to court to vindicate their rights. And they've an opportunity now, particularly where there's a clear case where the, in relation to the residential disability mm. services and long-term patients there, where they owe upwards of 9,000 people their money back. They mm. took their money illegally and yeah. they, they need to put those wrongs right. But, what, and also in, but how do you do that? Uh, I mean, Fergus O'Dowd is saying that instead of paying it to those people or their estate, uh, to put it into existing services going forward to improve services. Well you, well, you see, it's not for Fergus or I to tell those people that they're not entitled to their money back. They were, that money was... <coughs> if they're deceased, though. If they're, they're entitled. If they're deceased. But the problem is, well, if they're deceased, you know, I need to look at that. But the problem is, and it always has been, and even the current scandal of charging people for items that they're entitled to under their medical card, is that the government and persist, you know, government after government, when they put people and the HSE and the department, when they put people in nursing homes or when people go into nursing homes, they, the HSE in particular wash their hands of them particularly in relation to whether it's speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, they, that suits them. And that's why the battle is at the minute to get this right. And if that clause is put into the contract, and I'm not letting it go, if that clause is put into the contract, then a person or a family member has a legal right then because it will be breach of contract. And you could have people like the, or the advocates like the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, they can't actually investigate individual cases in nursing homes between residents and the nursing home when a complaint is made. Give them the power as well. But <clears> until <throat> that clause is put in, and the government know all this, I mean, Stephen Johnny, successive governments know all this, they're happy enough to let it go on. They've been turning a blind eye to it for years. They know what's going on. Something like this could be fixed. Okay. You are, are cynical as well, uh, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, but probably yep. more hopeful. Yeah, I am definitely hopeful because I think that uh, the debate now is is very serious and everybody's aware of the issues now. Depending on the view of anybody, and I'm giving my personal view, and I'm entitled to that, but I respect everybody else's view, um, I think it's a golden opportunity now 
to put additional ring fence funding into the schemes that I would like to see, that the action would like to see, that alone would like to see. I, um, I just, I just yeah. want to make this point another mm-hmm. time. I'll come back to you, Dad, Amelda. Let him make the yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that's critical. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk. I had a PQ last week uh, on the issue that Amelda raised yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in the programme for government that no nursing home support scheme resident is charged for services they do not use. So I asked, what had the Department of Health done about it? And the answer is a long-winded one. But the Department of Health does not currently hold data related regarding to additional charges in private nursing homes. And it sort of says, well, if you have a problem, uh, go to the ombudsman. Now, that's not good enough. Yeah, it's, uh, well, from what you're saying as well, it's not, uh, it doesn't sound good enough to me that the Secretary-General in the Department of Health isn't aware of what's in the programme for government. Uh, uh, absolutely. That's, absolutely. That's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you wanted to come back very briefly, please, yeah, about it. Yeah. yeah, just in relation to, you know, Fergus was talking about his hopeful additional funding and mm. the government has mm. put things right. I mean, going back to when the Fergus was removing beds, respite beds and long-stay beds from the cottage hospitals, his feel there at that time was, oh, the government's going to support independent living, the government's going to have the housing adaptation grants, yeah. we want people to live. Nothing's happened. <clears throat> the crisis well, is still uh, Imelda, the you might notice, but the, the replacement beds are, the are behind me here in my house. Yeah, I'm looking at still, them at the moment. There's still there, no yeah. housing adaptation <laughs> grants. People have yeah. to Yeah, and Fergus, our dad, made that point himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Imelda, the, 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 the beds have been built and they're going to open in this quarter in St Mary's there's 30 additional beds in there Okay, all right. we've we've gone over time look I have to leave there but thank you both indeed for joining us on the programme this morning Uh, TDs uh, who represent Loud and East Mead Fine Gael's Fergus O'Dowd and Sinn Féin's Imelda Monster Michael Reed on LMFM. President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed uh, the European Parliament yesterday. We'll hear just a little bit about what he said in terms of Ukraine's war and indeed Europe's war against Russia. For the first time in its history, the European Union is providing the military assistance at such large scale, at such scale. And for I see such a positive uh, assessment of reforms in the European in a European country that is fighting, defending itself and is modernizing and reforming its institutions at the same time. We're approaching the European Union. Ukraine is going to be a member of the European Union. Ukraine is that is winning is going to be a member of the European Union. The European Union that is winning. Right, that's President Zelensky, a member of Europe, or about to become a member of Europe. Ukraine is winning. Europe is winning. Let's speak uh, to Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey. Uh, is Europe at war? Oh, I don't think we are at war at all. We, we, we quite simply aren't at war. Like, the situation is that uh, Ukraine have candidate status for the EU. Now, there's various countries that have candidate status, some going back over a decade. Mm. So they now have to, there's a whole accession process that they have to go through and certain hurdles they have to jump, if you like. I think there's 35 chapters of a process that they have to go through in order to be compliant with, with EU laws mm. and all various other scenarios. So that whole process has to work. Do there you, is an ambition, I suppose, to... Do you to think that's the way it's seen in Moscow, though? Oh, I don't, well, I think what's seen in Moscow is more a direction of travel that Ukraine has made it quite clear that their intention, their future intentions are in Europe. Mm. And that probably doesn't suit Moscow, in fairness. Well, in, in, in it, fairness, who, who do you think uh, Mr. Zelensky was speaking to you? Do you think he, to, to yesterday, do you think he was speaking to you and the other members of uh, the European Parliament in his address to the Parliament? 
Or was he addressing Vladimir Putin and uh, the Russian leadership? I think he was probably addressing both. I think from the European side, I think he came with more or less a couple of asks. One is to get into the European Union as quickly as possible. The second would be military support in terms of the primarily tanks, long-range missiles, and the big question about whether or not fighter jets. And the third thing is a very strong point he made was very much about that he's fighting for European values, democracy, rule of law, freedom, self-determination, mm. things like that. As someone who and sees that, himself like, as a he, member he, of the he, European he, Union, though. Uh, well, no. Someone who was fighting, as he put it, fighting for EU values. Mm. But someone who wants to be, very clearly mm. wants to be a member of the EU. Well, he gave a he clear impression that he, he would perceive himself as a, a member of the European Union. And he uh, made it crystal clear that the European Union had his back and that he was about to join Europe. And that realistically, this is a coalition. What he said was, I suppose, that uh, he's willing to, uh, he wants to work with, EU, with the EU to get EU membership as quickly as possible. He pointed out that mm. he, despite the war, they're working at the moment to meet the, the, if you like, the standards to join the EU. So just because they're at war doesn't mean they're actively uh, doing the background work to, to prepare themselves for the EU. But definitely, they mm. want to be members of the EU. Mm. They want to be a partner of the EU. And I suppose the question here is, from a European perspective, it's a bit like what you say. Like, we have to be very careful. We want to support Ukraine, but we don't want to get sucked into a, a larger-scale mm. war either. And But like, he was like right. Mr. Like, Zelensky was right, wasn't he, when he said, never before has there been such support uh, and such military support from the European Union to a country like this to help defend itself. Well, I think within reason, like, like it's, it's been a protracted debate whether or not tanks should be set in, sent in. Like, fighter jets have not been, not been offered as of yet. Now, there's, there's suggestions that there is promises in the background of that. But none of that has happened as yet. So people are very conscious that, number one, we want to defend the integrity of, of Ukraine in whatever way we can without getting actively involved. Mm. But number two, we don't want to, let's say, push back, give Ukraine the option, like, let's say, to push back onto Russian soil and cause like a reason for a Russian to have some level of uh, justification. But isn't that what you do with so long-range missiles and fighter jets? That's that's why there's no that's why there's no fighter jets in particular, and that's why there's been uh, very little uh, in relation to long-range missiles. The idea was to give mm. a cover over over Ukraine, no fly zone that they couldn't. You know, that nothing could mm. come in. But, but Vladimir Zelensky was telling uh, the press yesterday that uh, the fighter jets are on the way. They're certainly on the way from the UK. The tanks have already been uh, agreed. Uh, and uh, if you were sitting in Moscow, surely you'd be saying to yourself, well, look, I'm hearing the president of the Ukraine say that his country is a member of the European Union, that the European Union is fighting this war with him. They're a coalition. Uh, he's got these massive tanks, weapons of war uh, from his allies uh, and he's got the fighter jets from the UK and he's telling us uh, that other European countries are going to supply him with fighter jets. Uh, What's the next move? Uh, Can we just ignore this or do we strike? Do we strike at the European Union? But the point is Russia is the aggressor in this war and we'll never lose sight of that. So what Europe wants to do is to defend a sovereign country, a sovereign country with aspirations to be part of Europe. As I said already, we have to be careful about how that process goes, because the sooner, if you like, Ukraine becomes part of Europe, the sooner we get sucked into mm. a, a, a broader conflict. Well, if Russia strikes Poland or Germany, uh, well, that's it, isn't it? It's... Uh, <clears throat> 
Game I on. don't see it coming. I don't. I, oh, that is the reality. And I suppose no different than Europe. There's the whole NATO situation as well. So you have to be very careful. That is why the measures in general are about defending Ukrainian territory or supporting Ukraine to defend their territory. Do not get directly involved ourselves. Support Ukraine to defend their territory, mm. but not not in a way like, in fairness, it's very difficult to, to draw a line between a defending territory and a, let's say, protecting that territory from missiles coming in and saying, well, you can't give them mm. any, any long-range missiles to protect that, or you can't give them any overflight cover. Okay. You have to be able to give all that. Mm. And at the same time, it's very clear, if Ukraine was to do anything on Russian soil, anything significant on Russian soil, yeah. that would escalate the whole situation. Yeah. Europe does not want, the last yeah. thing we want to do, and like... Uh, and so, so, so you don't accept that the situation has escalated uh, because of all of the reasons uh, that I've mapped out to you, and that's fair enough, and hopefully you're right. Uh, but it's not up to you or I or anybody else in Europe to decide that's the case. That's up to the Russians to decide. And if they decide otherwise, uh, well, then we could find ourselves in a, a war. And what will that mean for Ireland? Uh, we should be OK as well, a neutral country. And the Taoiseach saying yesterday that it would be non-lethal aid that we would be giving, no weapons and so on. But the Taoiseach then in Washington yesterday talking about a review of the triple lock mechanism. Well, I think everybody has talked about a review of the triple lock mechanism. Everyone has talked about, a, let us say, a citizens' assembly in relation to our, our position as a neutral country. Well, I don't and think so. I think 67% oh, oh, of the population don't want it. Absolutely, and I'd be one of those 67%. But I think we need to have that conversation. And I think that we need to look at the ways in which we can support a European defence that isn't about in an aggressive way, like true humanitarian efforts, like true cyber security, is a thing that Europe needs. Like we don't have, in any situation, we don't have military capacity to to, to take part in any mm. war, where there's any war. But we have the technological capabilities, both in the in the army and in civil society, yeah. to actually offer a cyber, a cyber security a option for yeah, Europe. But when boys when, when boys are conscripted for war, traditionally. Uh, they don't have any military experience. There'll be plenty of boys in this country that we could send off to their deaths. Yeah, but there's no, there, there's no, there, there's no conscription in Ireland. There, they, there's no suggestion. There is no European army. The suggestion is, if this was to happen any time in the next decade, I would nearly say it would be a NATO response rather than an EU response. The, fo- the point is, you can't lose sight of the fact that it's the Russians that started this war. The Russians are the aggressor, and what we're talking about is helping a country, a sovereign country, mm. defend itself. Okay. That's what Europe is doing. And, we're two, and I think we two have weeks to be out, very careful. Two weeks out from the first anniversary, uh, it's going to get a lot bloodier, isn't it? Well, I think the, the, the one concern, I, I look, these things are never simple, no matter what way you, you, you approach it. And clearly, Russia aren't for turning. And I think if you look at Russian history, it's, they'll, they'll always play the long game on these things. So it's very difficult to see where this is going to go and how, it sure how is. it's mm. going to come to, like, it, it's going to drag on, is what I suspect. Well, um, let's hope that's, that that's not the case. Uh, that's uh, Fine Gael MEP, Colin Markey. Colin, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an important word of caution for you if you're in the Dundalk area this morning, perhaps even further afield, uh, because uh, there's a scam to be careful of, particularly for elderly people. Eamon Doyle has come in to us uh, this morning, and uh, you've a, a terribly disturbing story, I think, of a, a woman uh, who's been swindled out of a lot of money. Yes, indeed, Michael. And I think that we were alerted to this by um, a couple of listeners, in actual fact, who had uh, made contact with us. 
and uh, just to explain of maybe a few things that have happened and maybe to just to to watch out for I'm, I'm told that two men are traveling around in a white uh, Ford Transit van I believe it's a, a D-Reg uh, that's all we know really at the moment we we do have a photograph of the uh, actual van but we don't have a photocopy or a copy I should say of the registration um, what in kind happened here is that they are called to uh, various houses in the locality they say that they're doing work in one particular house and they're taking over the street and they're been able to do a bit of a deal okay. but in actual yeah. fact then they're not really doing anything on any of the houses mm. so uh, this lady was approached she's quite elderly lives on her own and they told her that they would be able to power wash her path maybe on her roof and maybe some walls and things like that mm. and that most of the street were getting it done and they were doing a deal okay um, and and because they're doing the rest of the street it'll be cheaper it would normally cost you a thousand pound but under this circumstance it's going to cost much cheaper right and the other thing about it is is that the people on the street who are neighbours are getting it done so it must be okay Mm. when in actual fact no one's getting it done at all Mm. and uh, that's how they're sort of uh, getting in there so to speak so um, what they came along then and uh, it took 40 minutes to do the work uh, which is basically a ladder that didn't reach the roof Uh, ordinary um, um, a liquid that was put in just household Mm. and a small spray and sprayed a few things around and went back to the house and said that they would uh, give the lady a five-year guarantee they'd come back with that in writing and they were gone from the house within about 40 minutes uh, the website that we checked you know doesn't exist mm. we're not too sure on the phone numbers either yeah. it doesn't look like they exist either and we have given some information on to pass to the guards but the lady was charged 450 euro oh my and gosh. passed it over and she gave 450 she gave 450 euro for what for just absolutely nothing for a bit of water and fairy water, liquid water and mm. fairy liquid sp- mm. sprayed around mm. and uh, these people have been calling to houses uh, in the Dundalk area for the last two days in a certain uh, part of the town yeah. and you know people just aren't taking it but they move on to the next one and mm. are even back round to the same people they visited already mm. and, and just trying so what we're trying to say to people is there are good companies out there that do this kind of work but uh, be diligent. And of course, then, if there are people living on their own, neighbours and things like that, mm. I think people uh, sort of could watch out for them. I And I do know that uh, a couple of neighbours knew something was going on and then they felt bad then that this woman has been caught. You know, she's well into her 80s and handed over the cash. God, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it really is dreadful. And we've heard of stories like this uh, before and uh, they've been working Dundalk, if you like. Uh, now that uh, the word is out, uh, it's p- quite possible they move on elsewhere. Uh, be cautious no matter where you are. That's a lot of money for anybody, particularly for somebody in their 80s. €450 Euro gone in a pop like that. Uh, and the Gardaí are aware of uh, this particular incident. I believe they are, yeah. Okay, well, thank you indeed uh, for that word of warning. Eamon Doyle uh, reporting for us there. Now, just to remind you, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can also text a message to us on 0861800658. It's the same number if you want to WhatsApp your text. That's 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The United Nations Rights of uh, the Child Committee has published its observations 
on Ireland. Uh, Ireland was one of a number of countries uh, that uh, the committee gave verdicts on, if you like. And we'll hear about some of uh, the concerns now. We're joined uh, by Julia Hearn, who's uh, the Legal Policy and Services uh, Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. And a very good morning to you, Julia. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The government was represented in front of this committee by the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, who set out his stalls. But there were groups like yourselves uh, who gave uh, 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 alternative reports uh, to the committee. And the committee has come back and said that it is seriously concerned about mental health services for children in this country, that they're insufficient and inadequate. Good morning, Michael. Indeed, the committee did express serious concern. And to be honest, I don't think it was a surprise to anyone that the committee would express serious concern about the mental health services we have in this state for children and young people. The examination, as you mentioned, of the government led by Roderick O'Gorman took place the week of the publication of the Mental Health Commission interim report on the state of our CAM services. And really, I think the committee got a great insight from that as to the actual true nature of the mental health services in this country for children and young people. And really, I suppose what the committee do in their work is they try to provide government with a roadmap for how they can make sure they uphold children's rights. So in the area of mental health, they made a number of really good recommendations that if followed could probably help fix our mental health services. Some of us, we could all think up, you know, increasing resources, increasing yeah. professionals. But then they also focused on things like early intervention services in schools, which is really interesting to have them, you know, think about it as these children's rights experts, what can be done to fix the problem? Mm. Okay, this isn't the first time, though, uh, that uh, the state has been subjected to this type of criticism from exactly this committee about exactly this service for children who need uh, help with mental health problems. It's not. Indeed, the committee did give recommendations to Ireland in 2016. And while some of them were similar, so, for example, the committee made specific recommendations about putting children, about stopping the practice of putting children who need to be in hospital for their mental health into adult units. They've made that recommendation once. They've had to make it again. But they have looked at, I suppose, the current crisis we're in and tried to think up some recommendations that Ireland could enact. And really now what we need to see is government look at what the committee have said. Look at the roadmap they've provided and actually try to make a difference with what they've suggested. These are international children's rights experts. So, you know, they look at loads of countries in the world. So they kind of have a good sense of what can work and what can't work. So really now it's for the government to take on board the recommendations around mental health and try to implement some of them. Mm. Uh, They also spoke about the impact uh, that the likes of racism and discrimination Mm. is having on the mental health of children. They did and I think it really came out quite clearly that you know a lot of children be it from ethnic minority backgrounds or particularly traveller children and young people and indeed actually sometimes children in the care system have real difficulty accessing mental health services for a number of reasons and the committee were really strong on the fact that we need to look at our systems and look at the discrimination that these groups face so they can access services equally, equally with other children in Ireland and actually when you look at the committee's recommendations across all areas of children's lives there is quite a strong theme there about those children and young people who experience the most disadvantage being left behind. Because mm. the reality is, to give the government their dues, by and large, the world, the, Ireland is a very good place to be a child, but there's consistent groups of children who are left behind being in mental health services mm. or in other services in the state. Yeah, and I think some of those positives were uh, highlighted by the committee, but 
having said that mental health services for children mm. are, are shameful in this country and they've been shameful for years uh, on end and uh, anybody uh, who finds themselves uh, in particular in an emergency situation uh, will have terrible stories or it's not unusual to hear terrible stories about the services uh, coming from CAMS in those situations but there's also the very long waiting lists and so many children waiting over a year for a first appointment probably the most important appointment for those children and that's one of the things that the Commission uh, was saying to improve on that but very difficult to improve on that because the way to improve on it is to get the staff, uh, the professionals, the psychologists, the psychiatrists and so on who provide that care and the uh, HSE has been struggling to recruit in that sense. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at that, as you say, that first appointment, it's critical, as you mentioned, and there's a couple of things that can be done around that. And indeed, the committee and others have made recommendations around it. The first is to say is that the recruitment is a challenge. But I suppose what needs to happen is not just to focus on recruitment, but also focus on retention. We hear this from, from psychologists and from professionals that actually needs to be more of a focus on retention, but also forward planning. So looking at the university courses that are available, making sure they're going to bring on stream in the coming years enough staff so that this doesn't continue to happen. And then the other aspect of it is that early intervention piece. So looking at putting in place services and the Committee on the Rights of the Child did suggest, you know, in-school supports are key to try to stop children getting to that point where they need a first appointment. So getting the problem early supporting children within their communities at an earlier stage. Mm. So while we are faced with an acute crisis at the moment, we need to think quite broadly about all the different things that can be done to try alleviate the situation now, but also plan for the future so that it doesn't... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Get to this point again. Okay. Uh, something else uh, that we can't take pride in in this country is uh, the housing crisis and the impact that that's having on children. That was obviously of concern to the committee as well. 
Yeah, and the committee looked, I suppose, when it came to housing, at, at housing and poverty and the interrelated nature of housing and poverty. And when it came to housing, I think what really struck us when we were going in to, to speak with the committee is that when we were there in 2016, we thought we had you know, a really bad child homelessness problem, and we did. But actually, the numbers have doubled between 2016 and 2023 of the number of children living in homeless accommodation. It has only gotten worse. And the committee, I suppose, did express their deep concern around this. And it was really evident when they were discussing the issue with the minister that they were very concerned about this issue. So some of the things they recommended are looking at the root causes of homelessness. So again, looking at that bigger picture piece, phasing out the use of temporary accommodation because we know that in some instances, temporary accommodation is just not suitable for children and young people. And then looking at increasing the availability of long-term accommodation. And that's something that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how to do it, how best to do it. And really, I suppose what the committee are saying that from a children's rights perspective, not enough has been done. Mm. Yeah. Did they tell us how to rectify that? Pardon? Did they uh, suggest how to rectify that? I I mean, uh, the figures speak for themselves. Uh, There were over 3,500 children who were homeless for Christmas, wondering if Santi would know where they were. Yeah, and I suppose what the committee were suggesting to the government is, is, as I say, is that big picture piece. But then also they looked at the poverty element of it. So other things that you can do to support families, including expanding the school meals programme, making sure people have an adequate standard of living so that they're getting enough money into their pockets to support their families. So it's about looking at it both from a homelessness perspective, but also from the causes of homelessness and the other things that it impacts upon. And the committee was pretty clear that Ireland really needs to step up on this and they did provide them with a bit of a roadmap about as to how they can do it and now I suppose what we really need to see is government take these recommendations from this committee of experts and action them Mm, Okay well we were all children uh, at one stage uh, Mm. difficult as it is for some of us to remember maybe easier for some than others uh, but uh, the committee has also uh, looked at uh, abuse of children in uh, the past uh, by clergy and in Magdalene laundries mother and baby homes, reformatory and industrial schools and has said that those children now as adults should have access to justice uh, which uh, is very timely because uh, they've made that recommendation this week uh, in a week where we've heard Damien O'Farrell speak on behalf of himself and indeed others who fell victim to uh, the uh, sexual abuse of Christian brothers and a legal strategy that is completely legally permissible uh, which blocks thwarts legal action taken against the Christian brothers in order for them uh, to get the redress and compensation that they deserve. Yeah, and I mean, the committee was pretty strong on that, you know, that the that children presently, but also the children who have, the, the adults now who have been subject to abuse as children should have a right to access to justice. And indeed, you know, if you look at our legal system, it's one of the basic foundations of it, that people have a right to access justice. And I think what was really welcome about the committee focusing in on that is that they're not just focusing on children in the here and now, but they're also looking at what has happened in the past when people were children. So, I mean, it's really it's really important, as we say, this week to have that recommendation come out because it really does add to that, to that I suppose, that discourse that is going on at the moment around that. But I mean, when you look at education, the committee really did, I suppose, take a step back from our education and look at it in in a fresh way, because I think Ireland, by and large, has a pretty decent education system and will be seen as a world leader. But what the committee did is it looked at, well, actually, and again, coming back to those children in disadvantaged situations, 
is it actually working for them? And they really did come out very strongly by saying they did have serious concerns around the fact that the one-size-fits-all education model doesn't work, that we need to do things like reform the Leaving Cert, that we need to have a more inclusive approach to our education system. So I think it is really interesting to see the committee look at education as a whole, both, as you say, past abuses that have happened, but also what needs to happen and the big picture stuff we need to look at into the future. Okay, Julie, uh, we don't have the time to focus on the positive which is very unfortunate and probably unfair to a large degree because I think for most children it is a a great country to grow up in. Uh, But when you look at uh, this report in the round, uh, do you think it's a report that Ireland should be proud of? I mean, as you say, there's quite a few positives that are there for children, young people, and most children have a great childhood. I think in a way it's great that we have a report like this and actually in a way Ireland should be proud because they were very honest and very open with the committee about the problems that they are facing when they were being examined which has led the committee to really to be able to understand the problems on the ground and make good recommendations because it's not a perfect place. There are things that just are not good enough, like for example we talked about our mental health services, our homeless services, but by being upfront and honest with the committee I think we've gotten a really strong set of recommendations that the government can look at and try to implement and really I suppose harnessing that expert knowledge that they have and trying to make sure we make Ireland a better place for those children who get left behind. Okay, well we'll leave it there for the moment. Julie, thank you as always for joining us this morning. Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Northern Ireland is uh, without a government. Northern Ireland was without a government last February and it could be April before Northern Ireland has a government again. uh, That's April 2024. The Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris introduced legislation in Westminster yesterday which extends the period for the formation of an executive until the 18th of January 2024 but it would be April before Stormont is restored if uh, that turns out to be the situation. He has uh, the option of calling uh, an election sometime in between now and then. Let's speak uh, to DUP MLA for Upper Ban, Jonathan Buckley. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What do you make of uh, this decision? Good morning, Michael. Well, uh, first of all, I, I would say that it's entirely within the, the Secretary of State's gift if he wishes to call an election. I think that probably this is the most sensible route of travel in terms of giving time and space to try and get a solution to the issues affecting the Northern Ireland uh, political settlement, namely the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think that uh, for many people in Northern Ireland, they would look as they did at the time whenever Chris Hayden-Harris was threatening an election uh, some 12 weeks after the previous election. I think the majority of people are in this space to say, what would it actually solve? I've no doubt that indeed people will be able to take their case to the electorate. Um, But at the same time, uh, much better use of time would be trying to get resolution to the outstanding issues surrounding the protocol. Mm. And, you know, I think that's where the focus has to be. And we as a party stand ready to renew and strengthen our own mandate. Elections are are never something to be feared. They're the bedrock of a democracy. Uh, And we will, if an election is called, put our best foot forward and and bring those issues to the electorate. Indeed, your position on the protocol and uh, boycotting uh, Stormont uh, is playing well for you in the opinion polls, isn't it? I think you're up 4% uh, in the last poll. Well, certainly on on opinion polls, I suppose the only poll that actually matters is the actual election day. 
but in the sense that where we are today, uh, yes, the, the electorate do seem to be rewarding the Democratic Unionist Party for the stance that it has taken. Uh, understandably, people in Northern Ireland do want to see devolved government, but they want to see this issue dealt with and dealt with in an appropriate way. Mm. A sticking plaster will not suffice. It, it needs the radical reform to ensure that we can get back to consensus politics in Northern Ireland. Politics only progresses here in Northern Ireland when we have uh, agreements and settlements that all communities can buy into and not one single elected unionist uh, supports the Northern Ireland Protocol, so there's huge issues there to resolve. Mm. Uh, are, are your supporters shooting themselves in the foot, given the urgency of so many matters that a, a government could deal with, which are being uh, neglected because uh, there isn't a government in situ? I, I don't think shooting ourselves in the foot would be the word. I, I think people realise that there is absolutely a need for investment and reform in our public services, that being the health service, our road network, and data, our economy. But as Treasury has confirmed, uh, when we you can't separate or disconnect uh, the protocol from our public services. The Trader Support Scheme alone, set up to, uh, as part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which helps companies deal with the generated paperwork from that, has costed the taxpayer $318.7 million in just over two years. That's 18000 per hour or $3 million every single week. That is money that could be invested directly into uh, our public frontline services to help people with those day-to-day issues, but instead is being diverted and sidetracked towards an arrangement that does not have the buy-in of the Northern Ireland public. The Northern Secretary wrote uh, to your party and all of uh, the parties in Northern Ireland suggesting uh, that uh, you form an assembly to deal with legislation uh, which would allow for organ donation. I think Sinn Féin is expected to recall the assembly in the hope uh, that a speaker would be elected next week and that that could go ahead. Uh, Will the DUP support that if that's the case? Well, the DEP grouping will meet as a political party on the Monday before the recall. But our position is clear, as was outlined by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, directly back to the Secretary of State, which was Westminster should get on and put this in place. There will obviously be uh, secondary legislation that will have to come before Westminster to deal with this change in terms of an election date. And Sir Geoffrey has committed and spoke to the family directly that he will be bringing an amendment as such uh, to enable that to happen at Westminster as soon as possible. Okay, I'll talk to you about the protocol if I can in a couple of minutes' time, but if uh, that was sorted out to the satisfaction of uh, the DUP, would you take seats in Stormont under a Sinn Féin First Minister? Yes, we've been consistent from the get-go whenever this election result came. Obviously, I would have preferred a different result, and I think unionism uh, through divided... Uh, parties and divided votes weakened their hand in terms of an assembly. But, you know, we are Democrats and we accept the outcome and the verdict of the ele- of the election. And the DUP, whom have served since 2007 in power-sharing arrangements with Sinn Féin, uh, would absolutely take their seats if this issue is dealt with. But as I have reiterated at the start, Michael, it can't be a mere sticking plaster. If we are to see uh, change that is going to see the, the buy-in of unionism, it has to be fundamental. A solution to the protocol, as was seen with the Supreme Court this week, it was never going to be found in the courts, but the case has served to highlight some of the very core reasons why unionists uniformly reject that protocol. Mm. And, and the government has to consider that and put in arrangements and, and arguments in place uh, to to prove to unionism that uh, the subjugation of the union via the uh, 
reform of the Act of Union has really caused concern and that has to be addressed. Okay, but it's constitutionally sound according to the UK's Supreme Court. Uh, Is that not enough to appease those fears that you have about your place in the United Kingdom? No, because in in a sense it didn't say it was constitutionally signed. It said it was legally signed in the fact that Parliament uh, has um, amended the Act of Union. Uh, The late Lord Trimble was on record as saying the Act of Union is the Union. Uh, It it is the the building block and the cement that that holds this nation together. And for the government to amend that Act of Union um, to remove the principle of consent formally uh, from its uh, fr- from its its remit has served only to prove to unionism that this has altered uh, this the the current status uh, of Northern Ireland and it's something that we need to deal with and deal with in the round of these negotiations and the problem has been to date I don't think that Europe have fully grasped the huge constitutional concern that there is from unionism surrounding the Northern Ireland Protocol and in fact I would go further than that I think that many within the Republic of Ireland, namely the Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach at the time, should have known and probably did know, but this should never have been perceived to, to go forward in, in, with that attitude, knowing that it was going to cause huge upheaval. And, and my view was folly. OK, but Leo Varadkar and Maurice Efkovich uh, negotiated this and, of course, uh, the uh, 27 European countries uh, with uh, the United Kingdom uh, with uh, the Conservative Party uh, who had a confidence and supply agreement from the DUP at the time. Yeah, and I, and I don't think, and I, I wouldn't for one moment uh, wash the hands of the Conservative Party's involvement in this. I think it has been absolutely atrocious the way in which they have dealt with this, knowing the delicate issues that ha- are at hand, because it was a mistake to mm. press ahead and ignore the opposition of unionists in 2020. It has been recognised in, in London, in Dublin, in Brussels and in Washington uh, that they should not make the same mistake twice. And that's going to require uh, genuine engagement and flexibility from the European Commission to understand those constitutional concerns. Do you think they made a mistake uh, or do you think that they sold you out? Uh, I'd argue the latter, uh, if you allow me, uh, and I'd argue that they're about to sell you out again. Yeah, no, I actually, I actually think that it's certainly a, whether we look at London, Dublin, Brussels, or indeed Washington, I think there, there's a mixture of both. To be honest, I, I do believe that there was a, a, a misleading of Parliament in relation to Northern Ireland's constitutional place and what the effect that the protocol would have. And you know, and indeed, you are right, Michael, and that's why the DUP will not be just budged our unionism on words alone. It'll have to be actions. We will have to see tangibly. Uh, what changes have been made to assess that against our seven tests, whether or not there can be uh, unionist buy-in to the mm. institutions here in Northern Ireland. And we know that power sharing is the only way forward in Northern Ireland. We've been told that time and time again to find arrangements in which all communities can buy into. But let's not uh, sugarcoat this issue. Okay. The Belfast Good Friday Agreement has been undermined by the fact of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And until we address that issue, we simply will not get progress. Do you believe that there'll ever be power sharing again in Northern Ireland, uh, given the position that your party has taken on this? In order to meet uh, your seven demands or your seven uh, asks, as the case may be, I I think uh, you'd need to scrap the protocol, wouldn't you? 
No, I think what's what has to do. I believe, firstly, that there can be power sharing again in Northern Ireland. Absolutely, I do. I think devolved government is the only way forward. Um, but as is the the nature of Northern Ireland politics, you you will not see power sharing or devolved government if you if you cannot take uh, both communities with you, and indeed a significant part of the community that don't recognise as either designation. But it requires uh, universal buy-in and. Unless that is recognised, I'm afraid I don't see how in the short term we can see devolved government operational here in Northern Ireland. I don't think that the seven tests are insurmountable. Mm. I think that if there is a genuine will by the European Commission to show flexibility on these issues, to recognise those constitutional concerns, that we can find arrangements in which unionism can buy into. Mm. But on the on the kite flying and, and the, the commentary that I've heard so far, I think it's still a, quite a distance off. Okay, so if the British government signs a deal that doesn't meet the seven tests, uh, that's the end of it, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, we. I mean, they're not going to go back. They're not going to go back and renegotiate it again and say, "Oh, look, we made a mistake, or uh, we shouldn't have sold the DUP out, or whatever the case is." Uh, I mean, that's where we're at at the moment. They signed a deal. They're they're back trying to renegotiate it. Uh, they're not going to sign it again and come back and try and renegotiate it if it doesn't meet your seven demands. Uh, game over. Well, I think Michael, I would say this: our, our seven tests that we set out to the government at the beginning of this process. We're, act, we're actually taken from um, promises and commitments made by the UK government uh, from the beginning of this process. So they're not they're not things that have been plucked from the air or indeed mm. uh, DUP demands. They're actually commitments that have been made by the UK government. But I think you've highlighted the very point in which I've been trying to get across continually throughout this period of negotiation, that there is absolutely no point in pressing ahead with something that cannot get the buy-in of the unionist community in Northern Ireland. That would be the same if you were trying to press ahead with arrangements that did not have the buy-in of nationalism in Northern Ireland. I think what the focus should be now from those involved directly, both in Brussels and in London, would be to ensure that whatever package is presented has had the ultimate engagement from unionism and can address their key concerns. And and again, I think that if we we approach that that in that manner, that we can find a landing space in which we can see devolved government restored uh, and indeed uh, Northern Ireland prosper. Okay, good to talk to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you. That's uh, Jonathan Buckley, DUP MLA for Upper Ban. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's been a, a lot of uh, talk, of course, about uh, the return of uh, former Taoiseach, former leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, and indeed now grassroots member of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, Bertie Ahern, who has paid his dues. He paid the €20 Euro and uh, he's uh, now part of uh, that Drumcondra branch. Just a, an ordinary member uh, who's willing to do his bit for the party and indeed for the country if he can help. And we heard some strong <laughs> comments on the programme uh, about Mr. Hearn's past yesterday. Uh, and based on the feedback we got yesterday, you'd wonder if there's any point in talking about the speculation that maybe this is the beginning of a bid to become the next president of Ireland. Uh, It's very interesting as well uh, because I think Leo Vradker, the Taoiseach, said, well, that's a a matter for the Fianna Fáil party. Uh, And uh, Leo Vradker was uh, reminded of what uh, he had said about uh, the 
former Taoiseach uh, when the former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn was in front of uh, the Mahan Tribunal back in 2008. And of course, Leo Radker then was uh, a Fine Gael TD, uh, an opposition TD, it has to be said, uh, who felt that what was going on uh, was not good uh, for politics generally and for politicians. And he had some very strong criticisms of what Mr. Ahern had been saying to the Mahan Tribunal. People really have have such a low opinion of us. It's mostly undeserved, but partially it is deserved because of the way this parliament acts, the, the long holidays we take, and the unaccountable uh, method in which we are paid our expenses, and the fact that, uh, at least in the case of the ministers, not in the case of the ordinary deputies, that they're prepared to award themselves such massive pay increases um, at a time when most people are, are facing themselves on tighter budgets. And, of course, we should not forget the issue of the tribunals. Uh, which is a serious matter. And, and, and I don't think that it's just about the cost of the tribunals, which is a matter. I think people would be prepared to bear the cost of the tribunals if they actually saw consequences. But there are no consequences. We have a former Taoiseach who's gone, who's gone into, um, in, in, into uh, the tribunals essentially given the John Gilligan defence that he won the money at, at the horses. You know, this is a defence for drug dealers. This is a defence for, for pimps. This is not the kind of thing that should be tolerated from uh, a former Taoiseach and a former member of this House. But we do nothing. We wash our hands and we say it's a matter for the tribunal and there is no accountability and there is no ethics. And, you know, we, we ask ourselves why people have such a low opinion of politicians. And people have such a low opinion of politicians because we won't root out uh, the rotten apples in our own barrel. And we allow them to contem- contaminate our entire system. Okay, strong words. <laughs> Drug dealers and pimps. Rotten apples. The John Gilligan excuse. That's Leo Vradker talking about Bertie Ahern. Uh, but it was a point in time, I think he, he said, when he was asked about those comments yesterday. Anyway, that's uh, formerly uh, Fine Gael, uh, opposition TD, now Taoiseach, uh, who's in coalition with Fianna Fáil, which, of course, Bertie Ahern is a member of. Now, uh, some comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Deirdre Kell says, it's not right that people were charged for nursing home uh, fees uh, when they had medical cards uh, something needs to be done uh, to uh, sort that out and to right that wrong um, we'd uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from uh, somebody who says you should have allowed Imelda Munster to get her point across about what happened back in 2012 when the people of Drogheda marched in their thousands at the closure of public nursing home beds in favour of private homes Fergus O'Dowd was all in favour of private Privatising nursing homes at the time, and your program back then in 2012 was uh, biased against Imelda Munster and the people of Drogheda in favour of privatising nursing homes back in 2012. Fergus O'Dowd's party, Finnegale, promised a hundred bed unit was to be built on the site of uh, St Mary's on the Dublin Road. Eleven years on, and 30 now promised, and he is now not in favour of private nursing homes. Playing politics with vulnerable people's lives. That's from Eileen Murphy. Thank you very much indeed, Eileen Murphy, for your text of the programme. I have a, a different memory uh, of what we were talking about on the radio at the time, indeed. I think uh, the most coverage and the most information about that, informa- about that uh, story uh, came from this radio station. Uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, about uh, the report uh, that Eamon Doyle gave us about uh, the fraudulent work being carried out in people's homes in Dundalk. 
uh, says, uh, this is John, he says, I, I noted the reporter said it was over two days and the guards will do nothing as usual. I, well, John is saying he believes the guards will do nothing. Uh, yeah, the lady was uh, defrauded by 450 euro yesterday. Gave 450 euro to these con men for nothing. Uh, it's a word of caution to all of you. Margaret, uh, to all of us. Uh, Margaret, thank you for your WhatsApp message as well. She says, Michael, this country is a disgrace when it comes to people needing care and support. You wouldn't believe what you have to do to get a carer's allowance. People have to stay home to mind a loved one, be it an elderly person, someone returning home from hospital, someone with a disability needing full-time support, a member of a family uh, has to care for them and give up their job to take on this role there's nowhere else for a loved one to go to Michael I'd love to see some of these civil servants and those in government live a life without sleep no respite care no holidays and then they means test a carer's allowance only for Catherine Cox and the carers of Ireland I don't know what carers would do in this country yeah well said uh, and uh, good to give credit where it's due Margaret as well great organisation thank you indeed uh, for mentioning them as well this morning Uh, Rita in touch with us saying she doesn't understand how power sharing in Northern Ireland can be delayed yet again the North needs a government in place to bring in legislation and laws are the MLAs being paid in full while they're effectively not doing their job that they were elected to do? It's a circus up there, she says. Uh, they did uh, get a, a cut in uh, their wages. Can't remember offhand, but uh, I think 60-70% or something like that uh, the, of their full pay that they get, if I, if I remember correctly, but I, I can't remember offhand, Rita. Uh, but yes, they are getting paid, not their full salary, but thank you uh, for making that point. Davy says he cannot believe that Fianna Fáil have been stupid enough to welcome Bertie back into the fold. And now there's all this speculation that he'll run for the presidency. It's laughable, Dave. He says, only in Ireland would a, a man who has a checkered past like Bertie Ahern be considered for such an important role. It's no wonder the rest of the world is laughing at us. Thanks very much. Uh, I don't think those comments by Leo Bradker <coughs> will ever be forgotten. And, you know, it, it's probably put any idea that was in anybody's head to bed. I mean, could you imagine if uh, Bertie Ahern was uh, the president and uh, was here or elsewhere and people saying, are you the fellow who had the pimps and the drug dealers' excuses in front of uh, a commission of investigation where you were uh, giving the John Gilligan excuse? They were very, very strong words. Uh, John in Drogheda, thank you indeed uh, for your message to the programme. He says he was listening to Leo Radker's contribution to the Dáil yesterday, I think, and heard him say that those who were voicing concerns about the amount of new citizens coming into the country are far right. John feels this is a, a very unfair statement to make. John says there are genuine concerned citizens who want to know who is going to be living beside them and want reassurances that their children are able to go out and be safe. We can't just go to the airport and leave the country without any paperwork, so why are they allowed to enter our country without showing proof of who they are? Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it was explained in uh, the Dáil yesterday. For example, you can't get papers in a lot of these countries and as a result of that, people are travelling on fraudulent papers. Uh, They're fleeing uh, uh, despots uh, and very unsafe parts of the world uh, and they have the right to international protection when they come here. There's very, very good reason for it. Uh, And... Um, when it, it comes to the people living beside you, well, we're all we have a constitution in this country, and we're all entitled to a, a good name. And um, to assume that somebody is a child abuser or a rapist, 
um, is really unfair. It's disgraceful that these rumours are being spread about people without any foundation. And if uh, you were watching Primetime last night or if you read the Irish Examiner today, uh, you'll see uh, that there's a lot of evidence that this nonsense is being conjured up by the far right to instil fear in people's heads. The best thing that you can do, because you are right, John, a lot of people are concerned. Uh, the best thing that you can go do is go and meet the people who are going to live beside you, like any group of people. I'm not sure if you heard our, our programme the other day uh, where we did a, a bit of a skit uh, about uh, 40 f- uh, pharmaceutical engineers moving into a building, uh, uh, apartments, uh, and they were all men. Uh, and people wondering why do we have to have all these men moving in here uh, and the reality of it was was uh, that they were Belfast so they didn't need papers they came from a, a different jurisdiction different country if you like they didn't need papers they didn't need passports uh, they didn't need to be vetted because we don't vet people coming into this country to work for <laughs> pharmaceutical companies uh, we uh, weren't worried because they were all men, because they were all highly paid, highly educated men uh, who were doing great things for the local uh, economy and uh, bringing about change. I mean, a lot of people coming into the country have an awful lot of offers, uh, whether they're pharmaceutical engineers from Belfast or they're doctors, uh, for that matter, who've uh, come here from other parts of the world. A lot of Indian doctors, for example, or nurses from the Philippines, as the case may be. Uh, what would we do without those medics in the hospitals? Uh, it, it, it's beyond belief uh, that people would be outside of hospitals protesting about the staff working in the hospitals who are there to save our lives, to care for us. Uh, but that is what's happened this week uh, or over the last couple of weeks. We heard about it from the Taoiseach this week. I think we'll both agree on one point. Uh, there is absolutely no excuse for racism uh, of any form. Um, and I had the opportunity to uh, meet with the trade unions and business leaders this morning under the uh, Labour Employer and Economic Forum. And one of the uh, leaders of one of the health unions uh, told me that there had been protests uh, outside of a hospital in uh, Dublin in recent times uh, against uh, foreign, or foreign nationals who are members of staff in that hospital. Um, and while there is no excuse for any form of racism, in my view, under any circumstances, it really is a low blow uh, and a new low if healthcare workers, who we are so grateful for the fact that they have come here, uh, are now facing um, protests and racism uh, from those uh, who don't believe they're welcome here. Uh, and I think that's really appalling. Uh, and it's something that the government is going to fight against. Um, it's one of the reasons why we'll have our national action plan against racism, uh, which is going to be published uh, in early March. Uh, that will be led by Minister Gorman, but will be a whole of government effort uh, and it will include uh, funding for. Um, integration and also for counteracting anti-racist activities. Let's hope so, because uh, I don't know, I think there was a step too far a long time ago. Now we have gone many steps too far. Imagine protesting about people who are saving our lives and giving us uh, the care in hospitals that we need so badly. This is what the Minister for Health had to say about people it. People really have have such a low opinion. I uh, beg your pardon, that's the wrong clip. We can hear Stephen Donnelly now. He, uh, he was speaking about this yesterday. I would like to start today by addressing the verbal and the physical attacks on healthcare workers that have been reported in recent days. That staff, that our staff have to endure such attacks while, while endeavouring to deliver care is intolerable. It's completely unacceptable. It's particularly invidious that some of these attacks are racist in nature. 
a strong message needs to go out from this house that everybody is welcome in Ireland, regardless of race, creed or ethnicity. People who come here from other countries are particularly welcome in our health service. More than two in every five doctors and nurses employed in the HSE were not trained in Ireland. Without them, we could not provide essential health care to our most vulnerable citizens. And so I would say to those who are perpetrating these vile attacks, the person you are attacking is the person you will rely on to treat those you love. Your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, when they are at their most vulnerable. I'd like to say to every healthcare working in Ireland who comes from another country, you are welcome in Ireland, you are valued in Ireland, the work that you do is essential and the work that you do is appreciated. Thank you for all that you do every day for patients and for their families. Indeed. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's uh, some 18,000 people dead in Turkey, some 3,000 people dead in Syria. That's a, an official figure of 21,000 people who have died since Monday's earthquakes. And that number continues uh, to rise where it'll end. Well, I think as anybody's guests. Let's speak once again to Danny Smith, Communications Manager with UNICEF Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Danny, and thanks for joining us once again on the programme today. I think it was assumed that yesterday that anybody under the rubble had probably died at this stage, uh, but there continues to be some miracles overnight. Yeah, it it's really is amazing when you see the, the cases of children and, and people and adults who've been pulled from, from the wreckage, even at this late stage, they do talk about that critical 72-hour window for survival. And, you know, especially given the conditions on the ground, overnight the temperatures can go that, um, into into the minuses. So it really is amazing that people are still being um, pulled, from the, pulled from the rubble. Do we know how many people are missing? Tragically, we don't. We don't. Um, we've been linking in with our teams, you know, both in Turkey and Syria, and and you know, they're they're everyone is working on those numbers. But I think um, even the fact we don't know how many how many people are missing across the, across the region just is a, a tragic um, reality in itself. We there the fears are that obviously we're talking about millions of people who've been affected across across the two countries. Um, you know, there there are reports of hundreds of thousands who we know are homeless. But uh, no, tragically, we don't know how many children or, or adults are, are, are still missing. But obviously, everyone's working on those numbers. But um, yeah, it tells a story maybe for the, the scale of the damage and also the, the number of buildings that have been that have been destroyed. Yeah, I think where there's a, a disaster on this scale, uh, the approach has to be in three phases, the short term, the long term and uh, the medium term. But this is off the Richter scale, pardon the pun, um, but it, it, each of those phases will probably have to be uh, looked at in different phases because there's so much to do. It, in other words, in the short term, uh, you'll have to look at what can be done immediately thereafter and thereafter again before you get to those medium-term plans or the long-term plans of rebuilding these countries. Exactly that, Michael. So, you know, the first 72 hours, it's, it's search and rescue. It's uh, really, you know, at the, at, at the coalface trying to trying to um, get as many people from the buildings as possible while at the same time 
um, for those who've had to flee their their homes and and had their houses destroyed, you know, there's there's a huge population, as I said, who are people who are now homeless and they're in absolutely terrible conditions in the cold. Um, sleeping, some of them are, are still sleeping um, out in the open under bridges. Um, you know, hundreds of schools have already be, been converted to temporary shelters. So that's the kind of the the immediate thing. The immediate mm. term is 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 securing people's safety, their shelter, uh, ensuring they get uh, you know critical life saving um, supplies like water and food and, and and warmth and those kind of things. And then you do you move on to okay like. What, what is the, the longer-term uh, humanitarian response going to be here? Um, we know it's, it's not going to be simple. We know already this region, particularly the, the northern, northern part of Syria, was one of the most complex humanitarian situations in the world. So, um, you, you know, you're talking two, uh, two-thirds of people there already requiring assistance. Yeah. So we, we know getting we that assistance, getting that assistance in though after this earthquake <coughs> is proving a huge challenge. Uh, apparently, there's only enough medical supplies uh, to treat twenty percent of the people who are in need of medical attention, and the first aid has arrived from outside of the country. Uh, just six United Nations lorry uh, carrying aid I- I- into Syria. Absolutely. So the, the the scale of the needs um, absolutely um, outweighs, you know, what what's possible right now. So it really is a matter of all the t- everyone scaling up their their responses as much as possible. Um, you know, already even before this, the the agencies, the the different organisations that were working in Syria, didn't have the level of of um, of support and and require and and goods that were that were required. So it really is now. The, the scales are massive, and that's why any support that people can give allows organisations like UNICEF to to um, very much increase the, the support that we can give children and families on the ground. But as you said, it, it is at absolutely vast scale that we're talking about, and um, and it's really about all the all the organisations, all the international community working together, mm. getting supplies in as fast as possible. With the help of people listening to us now, for example. Absolutely, Michael. So, you know, it's been an amazing week in terms of the, the response that we've seen. It's been, it's been a very difficult week, I know, for, for all of our teams, but everyone's been buoyed by the, the response we've seen from, from people across Ireland. Um, you know, just our, our website has seen huge traffic, um, unicef.ie, with, with people coming on, giving spontaneous donations, people who've seen uh, our, our appeal and who are coming on and showing solidarity with, with children and families. Uh, in the region, so just to say, huge, huge thanks for that, and and you know every euro counts um, at a time like this. Mm, yeah, well, there's no doubt. I take it it's impossible to estimate how much all of this is going to cost. The human cost uh, is unthinkable. But uh, getting to that last phase of rebuilding the country, we're talking trillions. I take it. It, it, it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge number um, in terms of the long term redevelopment. It's going to be a huge number, but for for organisations like ourselves at UNICEF, it, it really is. We're still in the immediate yeah, uh, yeah, response mode, yeah. and then you know moving into 
moving into the the, the, the medium term, yeah. what are the humanitarian needs and how can we support children and families? And as you say, every euro counts, unicef.ie. Danny, thank you. Danny Smith's Communication Manager with UNICEF Ireland. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.